to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad you've joined us again on Mission 150. I'm David Trim. And I am Sam Nevis. David, what do you have for us today? Sam, last episode we talked about the extraordinarily innovative mission pioneer George Keogh. Yes. And this time we're going to continue his story. We had finished with him working in Egypt in the 1920s. We're going to take the story up to the end of his life. Okay. He was a fascinating character, fascinating person. Absolutely. Last time I was very impressed. I had not known about him very much. I went to school with one of his relatives, but I did not know about the the legend right. that Keo became. As we said, he was the most important Adventist missionary nobody's ever heard of, <laughs> or almost nobody has ever heard of. So, yes, when we left him, he was in Egypt in the 1920s. He was the director, as they called it, president, we would say today, of the Egypto-Syrian mission. And then he became superintendent, again, we would say president today, of the Arabic Union mission, which covered Egypt, and all the Arabic countries, uh, okay. close to today's Middle North Africa, Middle East and North Africa Union, but the borders are slightly different. Let's recap a little bit why he was so significant. If I remember correctly, he was a pioneer in having the need for localization and thinking through what is the best way to translate yes. the o- message. Also, he was a pioneer in what today we would call incarnational mission. And, you know, that in itself is an interesting subject, Sam, because on the face of it, we should all be supporters of incarnational mission, of trying to embody Christ to those we come into contact with. Indeed, we're all supposed to try to embody Christ as as much as we can. And yet, actually, Adventist mission over the years has very often focused on large-scale evangelism, where you haven't needed to be incarnational in your approach. But, of course, that didn't work and still doesn't work in Islamic countries, indeed is not even legally allowed. Uh, There's been other countries as well where public evangelism has been illegal, communist countries, for example. Um, But also, even in countries today where it's legal, such as Western Europe and increasingly parts of North America and South America too, uh, that public evangelistic model just doesn't work any longer. And so Keogh is an innovator and a pioneer that we can emulate not only in Islamic countries, though his success, as we talked about last time, was small by the standards of certain parts of the world, but dramatic and extraordinary by the standards of the Middle East even today. And what but he, his, his record actually offers us a way forward even in secular and post-Christian countries. Precisely because he left the mission, as in the compound, he moved, I think you mentioned north somewhere. He moved he, south. Into, south. But into Upper Egypt, he moved into the, the hinterland and then actually moved into a, a rural village himself. Thereby connecting with people at their most foundational part of society, which is, has, had not been westernized, had not been changed. He was interested Correct. in who people really were so that he can communicate with them, which is best practice for mission for centuries before that. Yes. But we weren't reading about missions in other parts. Right. We, were, we had to learn ourselves in many ways. Keogh actually publishes an article in the Northern European Division Church missionary paper 
1930, in which he says, uh, if you're going to go as a missionary, you have to learn to adapt to the local people. And he actually says, you said that it's been best practice for centuries. He himself actually says, look at the Apostle Paul, who was a native of Asia Minor, and that's probably one reason God chose him as the Apostle to go to that region, because he instinctively understood it in a way that, say, Peter just wouldn't have. Yeah. Okay, so he is in Egypt, it's working. Yes. What happens next? So, in 1928, the church has a major reorganization. Another and one, but not as big as the, the one we talked about not a few as, chapters. Not as big as the one we talked about a few episodes ago that took place in 1901 and 1903. But it has, and it, it doesn't affect the entire world, but it has some significant consequences. And also, this brings us into a slightly thorny area, Sam, which is that of church politics. What? <laughs> <laughs> and we have to acknowledge that because the church is, is human, um, pol church politics comes into it. And at times, as we will see, uh, church politics is even influenced by nationalism and, and secular, what we might call geopolitics. Okay. So, to explain that a little, we have to understand that up until 1928, the European division was the biggest division in the world. Divisions had been more sort of created in 1909, then given real substance in 1913. Uh, and by 1928, as well as the European division, there was an inter-American division, a South American division, a Far East division, and an African division. And no North American division, because that was just a general conference. No, that, no, they, it was actually was it was called the North American division, but the general conference related directly to its unions instead of going through an intermediate headquarters. Because ah, they didn't, I see. They didn't feel the need of creating an extra headquarters in the United States when there was already one there. Okay. So there was a North American division, but much of the world actually was in the European division. Because what the church did as it expanded, was to place mission fields in Africa and even in Asia um, that were part of, that would, where the countries were part of European empires, it placed those mission fields under the European division. Oh. So the European division included all of Europe, it included the whole of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, which at that stage hadn't become quite as persecutory as it was going to become in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. So that means it covers all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And it included more of Africa than the African division. The because African, of the, the... Because of the colonies. Yes, the, got the, it. The European empires. So, of course, um, all the French empire in West and Central Africa, the British colonies in West and East Africa, the Italian, Spanish, and Port... Not so much Portuguese colonies, but the Italian and Spanish colonies in East and West Africa. Hmm. These were all part of the European division. Okay. Um, the African division included South Africa and the British colonies to the north. Um, but much of Africa was under the European division. And of course, this meant the European division was just too big. It had just too many responsibilities because you're basically covering about half the world in that one division. So in 1928, church leaders said, we need to break up the European division. And of course, this had implications for the rest of the world because it had implications for representation at GC sessions and so forth. I see. So it, it was, even though it, if you just say they reorganized the European division, today people might think of just Europe or even just Western Europe and say, well, does that matter? In that time, it mattered a lot because of what the European division actually was. Okay. So they split it into three, the Northern, Southern, and Central European divisions. 
The Northern okay. European division was Britain and Scandinavia. What became later the Trans-European division. Exactly. And it, but it was the Northern European division right up till 1985 when it was renamed the oh, Trans-European wow. division. Okay. So it's Britain and Scandinavia, but it's also Britain's colonies in East and West Africa. So there's a kind of, almost a kind of colonial mindset, Sam, in that yeah. you say, well, we'll assign the territories that are colonies of European empires to those European to those European countries that have those empires. And the idea is that they're the mission fields and that the European country responsible will generate the missionaries to go to those countries. So British and Scandinavian missionaries are going to go to the Northern European division, which despite its title, includes much of West and East Africa. So is this, let, let's uh, pull that thread a little bit if you don't mind. Yes. Is this because it would provide an easier path for missionaries? That's part of it. And, and so if you want to gain permission to expand mission in a colonial territory, you need to get the approval of the imperial authorities. And if you're already there, that makes it a lot easier. Exactly. So the Northern European Division has its headquarters in London, where people can go directly to the British authorities and say, we'd like to expand our mission in this area. May we have permission? And the British are used to dealing with mission boards, and it's helpful, though, to have a local one rather than one that they're dealing with in Washington, D.C., or even in Switzerland, which is where the European Division headquarters have been. They also create the Southern European Division, which has some, though not all, of the French colonies and the Italian and Spanish colonies um, in, in Africa. So again, okay. the decision is that the, the French, especially, and to some extent the Italian and the Spanish, so the church is much smaller there, will generate the missionaries, and the, the Swiss, will generate the missionaries who will go and serve in those particular colonies. Some of French West Africa is actually in the Northern European Division. I'm not quite sure why, except that it was territorially adjacent to the British colonies, so I think that's probably the reason. So you have the Northern European Division with a huge part of Africa, the Southern European Division, which is basically the Latin-speaking countries, Portugal, mm -hmm. Spain, France, Italy, again with Europe and Switzerland, again with European mission fields. Okay. Then you have the Central European Division, and the Central European Division is the German-speaking countries and Eastern Europe, okay. except for the Soviet Union. So now, our guy is in Egypt. Right. Where does that fall under? Here's the thing. The Central European Division had to be its own division because the German-speaking parts of, of Europe were where the church was growing. Actually, up till World War I, the church was growing in Germany faster than in the United States. In the 20th century, from huh. 1900 to 1915, the church grew faster in, in the German-speaking areas of Europe than in the United States and Canada. That's amazing. And it's easy to imagine, actually, Sam, an alternative history in which if World War I hadn't happened or if the church had responded differently, the church would have had Germany as one of its strongholds wow. for the whole of the 20th century and still would be along now with not only North America but Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. They sent quite a few missionaries to South America, if I'm not mistaken. In the early 20th century, they did send quite a number yeah. of German and Austrian missionaries to, to South America. No, that's absolutely right. But in World War I, and this could be a subject for a, an, another podcast, though it's not really on missions so much, it's more general Adventist history, but perhaps we should explore it at some stage. Um, the German church split 
over whether the church should be actively involved in the war effort or not. Now in Britain, British Adventists were very clear. Adventists don't bear arms and British Adventists were imprisoned and beaten and, and suffered quite badly for refusing to bear arms and to be wow. conscientious objectors. In Germany, the official church encouraged young men to join the German army and actually helped facilitate recruiting and didn't tell the young men that they shouldn't bear arms. But there were enough German Adventists who knew that this wasn't the historic Adventist position to, to complain, and so you actually get a split in the church. And so the church stops growing in the 20s, and then Nazism comes along in the 30s, and the church in Germany suffers a blow from which it's never really recovered. But in, the, but in, the, in 1928, when they're splitting the European division into three, you have to have a division focused on Central and Eastern Europe, because that's where the bulk of the European members are, are actually, there's, there's quite a number in Scandinavia at that point, but the bulk of them are in Germany and the, the German-speaking communities of Eastern Europe, okay. because in Poland and um, Hungary, Romania and, and Yugoslavia, there were quite a number of German expatriate communities, and that's where the church was, was strongest. Okay. So you have to have a Central European division, but where is its mission field, Sam? You can see the, the, the northern... Because the other two already have a mission field. They, ha they have their mission fields we assigned to We need to give to some to so Germany. We have to give a, a mission field to Germany. So, but what can you give? Because Germany lost its colonies at the end of the First World War, thanks to the Treaty of Versailles. The British and the French and the Portuguese take all Germany's colonies in Africa. And so there is no obvious mission field. So they look at the Arabic Union mission, where German missionaries had been important in the very early years up till World War I. And they say, right, we will make the Arabic Union mission the Central European Division mission field. Oh, I can see that's not going to work well, is it? <laughs> because well, you've got Germany now leading the, the, the inter- the Central European, Central division. European Division now leading Egypt, and our guy Keo is British. Exactly, and there's <laughs> a certain amount of national pride that goes with all this. And so uh, the Germans say, we're in charge of the Central European Division. We want to have Germans in charge of our mission field. And so um, in August 1928, before the division actually has theoretically started to exist, it only comes into existence on January 1, 1929, but all three divisions have their first executive committee meetings in the summer of 1928, after the decision was taken to split, because you have to do planning in advance. Sure. And the Central European Division Executive Committee votes to replace Keo with a man called Walter Ising, who had been a pioneer missionary in Lebanon and then also spent some time in Egypt, though he hadn't had anything like the success of Keo. He'd also spent some time in Iraq. Um, and so this is where you get church politics, the Germans feel, and also the influence of nationalism, as I said earlier, because the Germans feel their sense of national pride. And so now you've got a clash between the Northern European division, which is run by the Scandinavians and the Brits, and the, and the Central European Division, which is run by the Germans. And the Southern European Division doesn't really come into this. 
and they're still, because the church is weak in Southern Europe, American missionaries are still more important in Southern Europe than they were elsewhere. But it's really a clash between the Northern and Central European divisions. There is no good reason to call Keo back from Egypt. Yes, he'd been there 20 years. Um, but he's quite happy there and it's working. So. He's quite happy. And he actually, 1928, he has a furlough back to Britain, his second furlough. He'd had one in 1919. He has one in 1928. There's no sign that we can see that he wants to come back. And here you have a man who is much loved by the Egyptian people and increasingly by people in other parts of the Arabic Union as well because he speaks their language, he understands their culture, he understands them at a fundamental level. And he's helping the church to grow, obviously. He's helping More the church to grow. There is no reason to call him back except for this sudden feeling, oh, we have to have a German in charge of the Arabic Union mission. And the Central European Division makes a, a big statement saying, oh, Easing has got this vision. He'd been a missionary. But again, he'd been a missionary there before World War I. He actually gets interned by the British during World War I because he's an enemy alien. And he'd never been back. He'd visited, but because he'd been secretary of the European Division. He'd visited, but he hadn't worked uh, in the Middle East since 1914. Okay. And so they make a great statement, oh, Easing has this great vision. Um, but really, it, it comes down to national pride My goodness. and a sense of rivalry between the two European divisions. It's sad to say, but that's, that's, that's the reality. And the rivalry is not really between the two divisions. The rivalry is probably borrowed from geopolitics at the time, right? It is. It's, it's nationalism. And we have, we're not far into this, even in, in our days, when you have parts of the world that are struggling with each other, uh, generally, that reflects in how we structure the church and restructure the church and yes. how we operate. Yeah, when I was, I was born in India, where my parents were missionaries, and at that time, Pakistan was part of the Southern Asia Division. And Pakistan included what today is Bangladesh. And around the time my parents left to go back to my father's homeland of Australia, uh, there was a war between India and Pakistan over the, what was then called East Pakistan, which established its independence as the country of Bangladesh. But now you've got a history of war between India and Pakistan. There is no way that Pakistan and Bangladesh can be in the same division as India, as, uh, because the headquarters is in India, you see. It's not so much that Indians and Pakistani Adventists can't get along, but from the respective government's point of view, the Indian government is going to be suspicious of a headquarters that has responsibility for Pakistan. And the Pakistani government is going to be extremely suspicious of a church organization where the headquarters is in India, saying, where is your allegiances? So these, that just illustrates you know, your point. And, and so um, we just reorg we've, we've never yet found a convenient and really good home for Pakistan. It was in the trans-European division for a time. I remember so, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is, you know, it's not part of Europe. It's kind of crazy if you think about it, but it, it had to go somewhere. Then it was put in the Southern Asia Pacific division. Yes. And now, and now it, just at the last annual council in October, it's gone into the Northern Asia Pacific division. Yeah. So, but really, geographically and culturally, the best fit would be with the Southern Asia division. Sure. But you can't. But you can't, but because of secular politics, and indeed geopolitics, it's just impossible. That there is a level of logistical ease that we need to acknowledge. 
You know, the mission has to go, it has to be structured. Our structure needs to serve the mission and not the other way around. So if we have the, if we don't have the ability to travel to the places that God right. entrusts to us, right, right, then there's nothing really we can do. No. And if Pakistan were in the Southern Asia Division, people from the division headquarters would have great difficulty to visit, even though they share a common border and it's actually not very far to go. But politically, they wouldn't get the, the entry permits and Pakistani leaders would find it difficult to travel to the Indian Division headquarters. So it, it's just, it's simply impossible. Uh, and that's just sort of the, the, the most obvious example. I mean, another you could point out that the old Yugoslav Union is today divided into two unions in the Trans-European Division because of the wars in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Uh, yep. Today, there's much better and more peaceful relations between the countries of the former Yugoslavia, and yet it's still the case that there's some awkwardness and difficulty, and so it's just never proved possible to reunite, even though they're two very small unions, and logically they could form one strong, they would be a strong union if they were together, but it's just never been possible. So anyway, at times, secular geopolitics has its impact on the church in ways that we don't have a choice about. But as happened in 1928, at other times, the attitudes bleed in without us almost being aware of it. I think that's the dangerous part. When we're not aware that we are acting out of a national agenda or any other agenda for that matter, or, or, or ideology for that matter, that we are not aware of it, we're just reflecting uh, that forward. So what happens to Keo? He goes back to England? So. In February of 1929, he and his family set sail for England, and then they arrive there in the spring, and in May, the church decides to have him teach at what was then called Stanborough College, ah. which today is Newbold College. Right. But then it included what today is Stanborough School, which is a secondary boarding school. It included both the school and the college at Stamborough Park in Watford. Where I studied. Where my, you studied as a, right. you did your, as a, teenager. as a teenager, you studied in the school, and then you also, like me, studied as a student at Newbold College later, so you have a connection to both institutions that come out of Stamborough College. Yes. So from 1929 until 1937, Keo is a teacher at Stamborough College, which in 1931 moves to a different location called Newbold Revel, and so it becomes then Newbold College. Keo himself, listeners to the first episode that we talked about him, the previous episode, may recall that in fact he had studied at the predecessor of Newbold College, then had a different name again. But so now he's come back full circle, he's teaching at his alma mater, and he's extremely successful and, in, and is very influential not only on students but on other faculty members because the faculty then was quite young. Um, it includes W.G.C. Murdoch, uh, one of the first Seventh-day Adventists to get a Ph.D. in theology from a mainstream university. Is that where we get Murdoch Hall from? In, at Newbold, yes, that's right. Excellent. Um, it also included W.L. Emerson, who was a writer and an editor. E.E. Uh, e. White, who becomes a church administrator, serves in several divisions, and others as well. So Keo and so and they're all quite young and Keo is the older figure and he becomes a mentor for the faculty as well as for many of the students. That's amazing because he's got this experience in the mission field with things that have worked. I'm a pragmatist. So does, did it work? Yes, it did. 
now he has the opportunity to bring new minds and shape how they see uh, the, the, the mission of the church in theological, but also very practical terms. Yes. One of the students he mentors is Siegfried Horn, and some of our listeners and viewers will know that name because he becomes probably the most famous Adventist archaeologist hmm. and really shapes the Adventist practice of biblical archaeology. And he's one of Keo's students and we know was very close to him because they correspond for the rest of their lives. So the people that he mentors there, <clears throat> one becomes an archaeologist, the other one a, a, a theologian, the other one is an administrator. This is very interesting because one good mark of discipleship is that you become who you were meant to be, not just copying whoever is mentoring you. Yes. So it's not that they all became missionaries. No, they all became what God intended for them to become based on the gifts that they had. Yes. Which is a, a fantastic way of, of seeing education. Yes. In general. And they in then turn have their own people they influence. So Murdoch, for example, becomes president of Avondale College and then dean of the SDA Theological Seminary. Hmm. So he is extremely influential in his own right. Um, but so Keogh and his family are in England for eight years and then things change because in the Arabic Union, easing had been a success at first, Walter easing the man they wanted to bring in. But of course, the 1930s and Germany people will remember <laughs> that this is the rise of Nazism. And so the Central European division is under immense strain because of the challenge from the atheistic regime of the Nazis. And so Easing, as one of the most experienced administrators, gets called back to the Central European division to help them there. And the man who replaces him, who's another German, of course, just isn't a good leader. And by 1937, the GC is saying to the Central European Division, come on, what's going on here? The things, progress has stalled. And the division itself is saying, okay, things aren't going so well. And so they call back the man, the German, who was a protege of Easing, by the way, and was probably appointed on a basis of patronage. <laughs> uh -huh. um, they call him back and they say, well, who can we replace him with? And at this point, the General Conference Secretary had passed through Britain and spoken with Keogh, who told him he still had a burden on his heart for the Middle East. So the General Conference Secretary, E.D. Dick, shares this with the Central European Division leaders. And in August of 1937, the Central European Division calls Keogh to go back to the Arabic Union mission as superintendent. How, so how now, did he take it? Do we know? Well... We know he accepts. Right. <laughs> you goes. <laughs> he, he goes. Whether he felt there was a po certain poetic justice to this or there was <laughs> irony, or whatever he thought, you know, he was, he was Scots-Irish. He probably had pungent opinions, <laughs> but we don't know what they were. Um, so that's August. He arrives in Egypt in November. And it's interesting, Sam, he writes a letter back to, to family or friends and says how they've arrived at Port Said, which is the port at the north end of the Suez Canal, so it's one of the major ports of Egypt, and says, we've arrived back at Port Said. And he said, he says, I, I'm, I'm not quite quoting verbatim, but almost, you know, we looked and we saw the people, the Egyptian people on the dock side, and they looked like good friends to us. Wow. Isn't that a great sentence for a missionary? That is, isn't that? Yeah. That's, to that's see the, the way people that are different from you, but they're friends. Yes. 
There is no appropriation of their culture or vice versa, but there is a level of connection with this other culture that thinks differently, dresses differently, eats differently. Uh, but there is this this common thread of, I believe, love, because nine years later, living in Britain, now he comes back and feels this sense of love and connection with them. Yes, yeah. And so he serves in the Arabic Union mission for five years. Now, this includes the most stressful part for Egypt of World War II. Because, of course, in 1940, the Italians invade Egypt. The British launch a counteroffensive. The Germans come to the Italians' aid. They send Rommel, the famous general with the Africa Corps. Egypt gets invaded again by the Germans. They're pushed back, but then the Germans in, invade again and get very close to Cairo. And if you read the correspondence between the GC officers and Keogh, the GC are panicking. They're saying, you've got to evacuate all the missionaries. The problem is, by the time they're writing, you can no longer send letters through the Mediterranean Sea. So the correspondence from Washington, D.C. has to go all around the Cape of Good Hope. Oh, my goodness. All then, the way down south, south of African tip. And then all the way back up. Because there's no way you can get ships through the Mediterranean. So it takes forever at this point. Yes. And so um, they write these increasingly almost hysterical letters to Keogh saying, first saying, well, we think you should evacuate the missionaries. Next letter escalates to, really, and you says, absolutely have to. to yes, yes, Why yes. haven't you done it? Why haven't you done it? Yes. And, and, you, and actually, you can see it in, the, in the, the way they sign their letters. At the start, it's, you know, your good brother. E.D. E. Dick, the GC secretary, and then by then it's sort of just a very curt greeting and instead of your, your good brother in Christ. <laughs> it's this very curt sign-off. But then the military balance shifts mm. and things stabilize. And Keogh finally gets the chance to write back and says, you know, thank you for all your letters. Um, I decided not to evacuate the missionaries, partly because it wasn't clear where we could send them. Mm -hmm. Um, partly because many of them didn't want to go. There was just one family of, of missionaries who, who actually wanted to go. And he said, more importantly, I thought of what the impact would be on our local believers if they saw us abandoning them at the first opportunity. So for Keogh, he's very clear. We have to stay with these people to show that we're... That we're incarnational connected. mission. It's incarnational mission again. Huh. And by the time the GC gets this letter from him, the military balance has changed. And Dick, the, the secretary, writes back uh, a letter, and this time it's signed fulsomely again, you know, your brother and your good brother, and so on, saying, yes, Elder Keogh, you, you were on the spot, you made the best decision, good for you, well done. But, you know, so that, that's a period, though, of immense strain for Keogh, and he would have taken his responsibility for the missionaries seriously. Uh, what is his... And it's not only that the Germans are on the borders of Egypt and indeed penetrate well into Egypt, you actually have fighting between the British and the Vichy French, the government that had made peace with the Germans. Mm. Um, you have fighting between the British and the Vichy French in Syria and Lebanon. And that there are missionaries in Lebanon and in Palestine. And so, you, you've, again, the fighting is right on the border. And there's also fighting that takes place in Iraq and Iran. So this wow. is a period of immense stress to be superintendent of the Arabic Union mission. Yeah, but he seems to have the calmness to, to Keo handle is, it. Keogh has the calmness, and perhaps we might say the trust in God, 
but also he has the calmness and the sense of the importance that you can't abandon your post right. when things get difficult. Yeah. I wonder if we, what it's like today, David, because what you're talking about here is a crisis where the local field makes decisions and the general conference, because of the delay in the letters, has to wait for the outcome. They, they don't have yes. much of an option. They don't, because they can't, they simply can't influence the situation. Today we'd be in touch by email. Um, Sometimes even a visit or two. And I think, or phone calls at least, or video calls for that matter. Yes. It's a, but the tension is still there. You know, and, and since I've been here, I've seen how much trust there is in local fields, in in even tense situations. The Yes, the the rest of the world thinks we should go in this direction, but there is that patient process of waiting to see how the local field would react and how they would exercise their autonomy. And that seems to be the spirit as much as possible. Yeah. Today it would be much easier to micromanage from the center. Yeah. And I think we've learned from the past that you have to, these are units that have their own constituencies, their own delegated authority, and you have to let them exercise it. Yeah. And that, of course, is part of the, the genius of the system that comes out of 1901, 1903. Yeah. You do create lower levels of authority with their own constituencies and their own delegated authority. They're not completely autonomous. They're not independent. But they... But they're not totally dependent either. No. no. Yeah. Okay, so, so what happens next? So, well, in 1942, Keogh gets called to Washington, D.C. Just a few years before, the church had founded the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary. Now, today it's situated on the campus of Andrews University in Michigan. Mm. But originally, it was located at the same place as the world headquarters in Tacoma Park. Okay. They build a new building just down the street from the General Conference headquarters on the same sort of general campus, one might say. And there's something remarkable happens in... 1942, Sam, which is that the General Conference leadership, J.L. McElhaney, uh, the president, and E.D. Dick, the secretary, have this extraordinary vision, which I think is must be God-given. Not a literal vision uh, like Ellen White had, but you know, sure. a vision for the future, which is to say, the war is going on, but it's going to end and we need to be ready for it. This has been, a, wow. the last three years have been a period of contraction for the church, mm -hmm. of pulling mission, and in many countries they did pull missionaries out. Because of the war circumstances, there was no choice. Mm -hmm. Or as in early 1942, missionaries in some parts of Asia get interned by the Japanese and others get cut off. So under the strains of war, the church has had to contract. But now, and, and they realize there's nothing we can do about it at the moment. But the time is going to come when God is going to open the way for missionaries to go forth again, and we need to be ready. Now, I just want to stress to you, Sam, just how extraordinary this is, because actually when they're doing this, which is at the Spring Council of 1942, is the moment when the war was at its darkest for the Allies. The Germans were on the advance in Russia and North Africa. The Japanese were on the advance. This is actually when things look, this is when things are the darkest. That they need to talk about the 
future of mission and they need to yes. focus on that. And they say, and so they say what we're going to, and, and the places we're going to prioritize after the war are the Middle East and China. Hmm. And they say, we are going to call families. We're going to call families with both the husband and wife to come and go through training programs at the seminary and we will have them on salary and we will keep them ready so that as soon as the providence of God opens the way, they can be sent. And in fact, because, tremendous. because the Allies win the war in the Mediterranean in 1943 and it opens up the possibility, the first of those missionaries actually go to Egypt um, before the war is over. They go in 1944. Wow. But they can do this because of this incredibly bold step they take. And one of the things they say is, we want somebody to teach Arabic at the seminary. That's where our boy comes in. And they call <laughs> Keo. So Keo, it takes him a while. He gets, wow. called in, he gets called in July. And because he has to take a circuitous route still, again, all the way around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa, um, it's not until November that he arrives. But here's the thing, Sam. He doesn't just teach his Arabic. He teaches Arabic culture and he teaches about Islam. We know this because we have his teaching notes. So we know what he's teaching. And though his title is Professor of Arabic, he's not just a language teacher. He is a teacher of culture and religion and of understanding of this alien Islamic culture. Hmm. And the first graduates emerge in 1943. They actually include Neil C. Wilson, who later went on to become president of the General Conference. Wow. And he and a couple of other missionaries are the ones who are actually sent to Egypt before the end of World War II. So, they, so Keo is part of this incredibly bold step, but it also means that for the next four years, he is at the center of the World Church. Because remember, the seminary building is just around the corner from the World Headquarters right, building. Right, right. So he is actually at the heart of World Church Organization, and there was, a lot of, um, uh, there was a lot to do between the two headquarters, because people from the, the General Conference would teach in the seminary, because, of course, they had immense experience. And I'm sure, I'm sure he became a resource to ask questions about the mission field in itself, too. Yes, I, yeah. un unquestionably. But then something strange happens. In 1946, they decide to discontinue the program in Arabic. And maybe it's because Why? they've now had three cohorts go through. They've, they've called a series of families. I don't, we don't know the details, and the minutes of the seminary don't give an insight into this. They also had appointed people to teach French and Russian, um, and they discontinue those as well. So why that happens, we don't know. But so in 1946, Keo and his, and his wife and those of his children who are still living at home returned to England, where for a year Keo is pastor of the Stambra Park Church, which is the, head, the headquarters church of, of, of the British Union. Yeah, I was a pastor there too. Yeah, so this is, <laughs> this is all a blast from your past. This is your greatest hit, Sam. That's right. Except he didn't work in Wimbledon. No, he didn't. <laughs> but in 1940, he's been pastor of the Stambra Park Church for a year, when in 1947, he gets called by the Middle East Union to direct the Voice of Prophecy radio work wow. in the Middle East. So he is at this point 65. He probably got given the church of Stamborough Park to pastor to keep him busy until he could retire. Retirement, yes, yes. But here he is being asked to take on a new missionary appointment, which would be his third, and he accepts. 
So media ministries, no less. Media ministries, absolutely, because Voice of Prophecy is very new. And Voice of Prophecy outside America really is brand spanking new. So yeah. there's radio work in the Middle East. And wow. Keogh had already identified in a, in a strategy paper he'd written for the church leaders in 1945, he'd already identified radio as the best way to reach the Middle East. <laughs> because it can, it can penetrate to Muslims who otherwise you There can't. was just no radio there yet. People had radios, but there was no radio but ministry. But not Adventist. No. By 1947, radio. the Voice of Prophecy is starting to do radio broadcasts in the Middle East. So he and his wife go as missionaries for a third time, actually a fourth, because America was a mission field for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the third time they go to the Middle East, and at the age of 65. And in 1950, the Middle East Division gets formed, and Keogh keeps directing radio and ministry okay. for them, and it has publication, has publishing ministries added as well. So he is the media ministry person wow. for the Middle East Division. I like him a lot already. <laughs> well, eventually after seven years there again. So he's done 20 years, he's done five years, then four years in America, and now another seven years in the Middle East, this time based in Beirut in Lebanon. Okay. Um, where, by the way, he was a member of the Arabic-speaking church. There is one. Yes, there, was, there were Arabic, Armenian, and English-speaking churches. Okay. He, so he wasn't a member of the English-speaking church. No. He was a member of the Arabic-speaking church and was actually its head elder and for a time its pastor. <laughs> which just shows oh, how enculturated he is and how steeped yes. he is in the local language and culture. And his heart for mission, because there's no spring chicken at this point. No, and, and, and here he is taking on the role of senior elder and even interim pastor yeah. while he has these other major responsibilities. Wow. But in 1954, at the age of 72, I think by this stage, he's just a little too old and maybe a little too cantankerous for the new generation of missionaries mm -hmm. who probably think they are the bee's knees, they are where it's at, and who is this older guy? Right. And who expresses himself very frankly, because we have copies of his correspondence, and he, ex he, ex he tells it like it is. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine the new generation of American church leaders having a bit of a cultural disconnect with this British, this Irish guy. Um, straight shooter. Straight shooter, finding him difficult, and so they ease him out and have him returned home. At the age so of now he retires. No. <laughs> now he accepts a call to teach at Newbold College. Very good. Okay. So he goes back to Newbold, it is the second time, and teaches at Newbold for another 12 years. Wow. He actually retires finally in 1966 at the age of 84. And I love it. And at Newbold, he becomes a mentor to a whole new range of, of young church leaders, including people like Samuel Bakayoki and Jack Sukera, huh. David Marshall, a, a British church, and of course, a whole bunch of British church leaders who, whose names would mean something to us, but not to many of our listeners. That's so beautiful. he becomes this incredibly influential figure. And then finally, in 1971, having retired only five years before, he passes away having retired to Ireland, to what was his homeland, but can't have seemed like a homeland because he spent so much of his time living elsewhere. So that's the story of George Keogh. And it's also partly, I think, the story of the providence of God, that even though he gets sent back to Britain in 1929, the way opens up for him to come back in 1937, 
which I think is a providence because it means he's there during World War II as opposed to somebody else who might have got easily frightened. Right. And then he has the four years at Washington, D.C., where he trains the next generation of leaders in the Middle East um, and has an influence on church leaders. Then he has this period of seven years back in the Middle East. So in all, he spends 32 years in the Middle East plus the four in America. and then, uh, at well past retirement age, goes back to teach at Newbold for a second time and does it for 12 years. So it's an Amazing. extraordinary life of service and commitment, but it's also a life of innovation and pioneering different forms of mission. And the, it's just the sad thing is, Sam, that his innovations get forgotten. And the things that he was doing in the 1910s have to be rediscovered by Adventist missiologists in the 1970s and 1980s. Wow, that's 60 years ahead. He's 60 years ahead of his time, if not more. And huh. that we have a church in Egypt today is largely due to Kiev, because the other missionaries, as we touched on in our previous episode, have had virtually no impact. And he also then has this impact throughout the Middle East because of the Voice of Prophecy radio broadcast that he's responsible for. I think... For me, the most inspiring part of the story is he doesn't seem to build any resentment or cynicism against the church, despite all that has happened back and forth and here and there. And he loves the mission, he loves his church, and he will go until the end of his life uh, doing it. Yep. David, thank you so much for bringing us this story. It's a pleasure. Uh, this is a story I have done a lot of personal research on, Clearly. including on Keo's papers at Newbold and the papers we have of his at the General Conference Archives. And I just find it a fascinating and an inspiring story, so it's a privilege to share it with our listeners. I consider this a bit of a meal, where you spend hours and hours cooking, and very quickly we eat it and, and enjoy <laughs> it. Thank you again. And thanks again for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching us on AdventistReview.tv on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel, or listening on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities today, if you'd like to serve yourself, go to VividFaith.com. That's VividFaith.com. We'll be back next time with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world.